a massive development project in Overland Park, and the strange tale of Carol Dilley. I'm Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board. Welcome. You're on Deep Background. Well, greetings. You're on Deep Background for December 4th, 2019, as the decade of the tens comes to an end. Dave Helling with the uh, Stars Editorial Board and joining us, my co-host, uh, Leah Becerra, of course, and our buddy, Eric Adler of the star who has uh, written or did write this week an amazing story about a woman named carol dilly that's right all right well tell us all about carol dilly and why uh, why her story is so compelling oh uh, well gee um so to be honest with you i'd heard about carol probably going back about 10 years or so uh you know full transparency i live in the neighborhood that carol uh lives in and I had heard about the stories of the rat house uh, in this neighborhood for years and years and years. It's a pretty nice neighborhood, uh, not far from the Country Club Plaza and off of Ward Parkway. And frankly, I never did much on the story because I lived in that neighborhood. And um, there has been for 20 years a conflict between uh, Carol and the way that she lives and the neighbors around her and the notion that she had rats in the house and were nurturing rats and was feeding rats and that those rats were uh, moving away from her yard into the yards of other people and I'd heard this for years and years and years. Uh, Lynn Horsley actually did a small story on her back in 2005 and to be honest with you I just thought the story disappeared. She's not doesn't live near me and I don't really know her neighbors um, but then I found out recently it hadn't and that the uh, this uh, conflict was still going on. And, uh, and looking into a little bit, we found out she was actually charged with seven criminal felony counts in federal court for, for other matters and that. Not related to her home. Well, it, it's somewhat related to her home, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I think everything in Carol's life is related to, to her to, home. To the other things. Uh, yeah, to <laughs> other things. And so that's why we decided to explore the story again and, and found that this <laughs> conflict is still going on. All right, well, describe what her home is like. Yeah. And what, it, it, this isn't a case of neighbors sort of being upset about a broken fence, is it? No, no, it's not. And and so Carol is, she's actually a really lovely woman. And I mean, kind hearted, it seems. And smart, very smart, um, you know, sweet natured, easy to talk to, incredibly, incredibly intelligent. And and up on everything in terms of, uh, you know, environmental sustainability and uh, just considers herself sort of a lover of nature. She lives in this small bungalow in Westwood Park, which is, again, off of Ward Parkway. Um, I don't know what the value of the house would be. But this neighborhood know. is, what in your story, yeah, half-million-dollar houses. Yeah, th- yeah, I mean, I think they were middle-class houses, uh, you know, in the day. And, and, of course, now those property values have gone up. And so some of the smaller houses are being torn down. Five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars. Young families, putting, Eric. From no, retirees? these tend to be yeah, so young families to retirees, but uh, a pretty stable neighborhood. You know, over the years, I think probably people in their forties and fifties. Yeah. And but what? Some retirees. But what unites them is some concern about Carol Dilly. Yeah, and the, the the what unites them is the concern over the what they say are the rats that have been pouring out of her yard. For years and years and years, in, in which they say that she refuses to either acknowledge in any way that they exist um, or do anything about. 
Um, and so we went. But I got the sense from your story it was about rats, but more than rats too. Inside of her house was a little disheveled. She doesn't want to hurt a spider. Right. The, the right. landscaping is not what you would typically see in an upper middle class neighborhood. No, she considers herself a, a naturalistic habitat kind of gardener, and and so her backyard is what other people would see as really really overgrown with a lot of you know, thicket and uh, branches down, and, and as are the front yards of her house. And around them, of course, are these sculpted yards, you know, really well-kept kind of homes. Um, and, you know, what the neighbors say is that she feeds rats back there, and she sort of refuses to do anything about it. Yeah. Um, and they, there's they, the story. They, they, yeah, there's the story. Um, the story went, is so interesting because... From one point of view, it could be seen as though this woman is kind of being bullied. Right. But on the other side, if you if you put your mind into the frame of I'm living next door, you would necess- you might deal with some of these issues kind of crawling literally sure. in some cases into your yard. So it's it's a very like conflicting story to read, but it's so interesting and it's actually sparked a lot of conversation from people. Yeah, and I, I think some of that conversation is about a you know a woman in, who wants to live the way that she wants to live, and then how that right to live, how you want to live, encroaches on other people's uh, rights and 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 you know and their homes and their yards. And to be frank with you, I mean Carol, when you talk to her, she's kind of mystified, or she says she's mystified at the blowback that she's gotten from neighbors. She says, "Listen, I'm just trying to live the way I want to live. I don't really want to kill any mammals. I don't think there's any rats in my yard." Yet she also would not really allow me in her house or or me and a photographer into her backyard and she also doesn't allow city inspectors into her yard which is another part of the story sort of their inability to really do anything um you know if you don't allow city inspectors onto your yard or into your property there's very very little they can do other than police the yards around there you know put bait boxes and, and that kind of thing and so yeah in some ways she's a very uh, compelling and even sympathetic character, I think. Um, you know, until you have rats <laughs> crawling under the fence or along the fence line, or uh, you know, coming for, into for your own yard. For twenty years, I mean, that's yeah, the and other I think part that's what made story. it really yeah. fascinating to us yeah. is that this was not just a rat story or someone over the who last just year. moved into the neighborhood. Or right. This has been this going, going, on, been for going on for years and years and years and years, and she has Families dozens. come and go. <laughs> right. People have come and gone. People have moved. And she has had, um, you know, countless complaints, nuisance complaints against her. She's gone to court. The Homes Association there put up about $25,000 of its own money in state court to try to get her out of the house or at least clean up the house, right? They're not saying we care about your yard being a mess. I mean, if it was just branches and, you know, trees and leaves and that sort of thing, or even if it was just a hoarding situation where she's living like, you know, as she wants, they understand that like that but this is her life encroaching now on their life and they've said you know please Carol just clean this up get rid of the rats get rid of there and she has said I don't think there's a rat problems despite the fact that there are just really countless uh, uh, you know evidence that that exists and so they finally got 
her to get rid of the house. I mean, a, a receiver, the court said that you have to get out of this house, and they brought in a receiver to clean it up, which they did, and all the neighbors were absolutely thrilled with this, this idea, like, and finally <laughs> the house, right, is going to be, is going to be uh, cleaned up. Uh, she had the right to get back in the house if she could pay for those repairs. No one thought that was going to happen. Indeed, she ends up showing up, like, at the county at the last minute with about $150,000 plus, uh, is back in the house, and then sl slowly the rats came back. She, she owns two houses, right? She owns a number. She owns those two houses side behind side in Westwood Park. She owns another house in um, on 66th Street in Brookside. She co-owns a house not far in the West Plaza with her brother, only a uh, you know a half a mile or so away from her current residence. And she owns another house in Bates City in Johnson County, Missouri. Um, so she do, has do, do a she lot have of problems. similar problems in these other homes? So or is people it, say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least one on 66th Street, they say it's exactly the same problem. Um, but she's so back this, in. So this seems, I mean, we're all used to eccentric neighbors. Right. I mean, all of us. It's part of uh, living in public. Part right? of the thing when you live in a neighborhood is the guy down on the corner, we never see him or he doesn't trim his bushes or whatever. Right. This seems much more than that. It does seem more than that. And, um, you know, I, I think what has confounded the neighbors is they just had no way to, to separate Carol from her house or the habits that she seems to practice around her house. And then what happened, unbeknownst to the neighbors, is that, um, you know, to, to sort of to stop the neighborhood from going into her house, she kept filing bankruptcy um, uh, applications with the feds and saying, I'm going bankrupt. And when, once you do that, it stays, essentially stops all kind of litigation against you. And so she would consistently file these bankruptcies in federal court. Um, you know, stopping the receiver from taking her house, stopping the, the, the progress they were making. Yeah. And the, the courts would say, sorry, this is not a legitimate bankruptcy application. She would do it again. Sorry, she would stop the courts. And so it was going on for a long, long, wow. long, long time. Well, lo and behold, um, people started looking into those things. What was happening in the meantime, she had a husband that she was divorced from uh, and allegedly had been, uh, according to the feds, stealing his social security checks, having those um, uh, deposited, uh, deposited in, yeah. a, in her account, actually in the, the name of a church. She had called her house a, a church. She's the Reverend Ca uh, uh, Carol Dilley, and I think it's the Alliance of Love Chapel 1202. Had, she had, she had uh, uh, you know, created that for, in the name of her home at that address and was shuttling his social security, again, allegedly, the feds say, uh, into that account. And in so doing, she did not put that in her bankruptcy uh, applications, and so her filings. And so as such, that is considered fraud, both bankruptcy fraud. And social security fraud. Yeah, social security fraud, taking a wire fraud, because this is all going on over right, right. You know, wires, and including, uh, I think, uh, stealing his identity. And so the feds now have seven uh, federal counts against her. She goes to trial in uh, February. Um, we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, just a quick point there, but I got a call yesterday from a reader who said, wait a minute, she's represented by a public defender. We had just done this huge yeah. thing on public defenders, but it's yeah. in the federal system. 
public defenders in the federal system are different from in the state. Yeah, system. and I don't know really what right. the, or uh, how that the works criteria or, is yeah. for her to get a public defender in the federal but system. But she does have one. She does have one. Um, She's also got defenders online, right, Leah? I mean, people are calling and saying, leaving this poor lady, or writing and saying, leave this poor lady alone. Well, that's the thing that when I was reading the story, there's a quote um, from... I believe it was a realtor or something mm-hmm. like that um, when they said we want her out of her house and that quote just it conflicts me so much because part of me is like it's her house mm-hmm. and i think a lot of people relate to that like once you put down a lot of money you own this house you're invested it's really hard to separate yourself from even all of this stuff that's happening, because nobody wants to be kicked out of their house. And nobody wants to feel like they are being potentially going to be removed from that house. Absolutely, and I think what the neighbors would say is, listen, they are absolutely tolerant of Carol and sort of her her, uh, uh, quirky ways and how she wants to keep her yard. And if, you know, in their minds, if the rats were not coming over the fence and under the fence and into their yards and, and burrowing holes in their yards, listen, live in your house as long as you would like to live in your house. Just can you please keep that problem over there? But that's not happening. Um, and I think so their patience is, is, is at an end. Now, they have nothing to do with this federal suit. This is just yeah. what they think may be the final... Um, um, step to maybe separate Carol from this house or force her to clean it up again or and do, something might happen. Personally, I, I mean, I know this is not about me or what I think, but I, I have my doubts that that may happen. I mean, she's not a felon. She doesn't have any serious kind of uh, criminal record. And I don't know what's going to happen in federal court. I mean, federal charges are serious, obviously. But I, I don't know the chances of, you know, Carol being find an amount that she can't afford. She has a lot of properties. She can sell those properties to pay in some kind of fine. I, I would doubt she would go to prison. Um, again, separating from that home, I, it just we seems unlikely. See. I have a feeling Carol may be in her house for, for many, <laughs> well, a I, long time to come, and this may not be solved. Yeah, let's, I did get a sense, though, Eric, that the neighbors were frustrated in some ways that the city's not able to do more Right. And I think there's a common misconception in the world that cities like Kansas City have the teams of inspectors who are out all the time and throwing people out of substandard homes. That's just not the case. I mean, the city's ability to regulate stuff like this is more limited than people realize. Yeah, my understanding is, for instance, in the health department, if they find out, if they have access, first of all, to someone's home and they find out that that home says has no heat or has a broken pipe or there's water pouring it's into it. It's not habitable. It's not habitable. It's not safe for the person in the house. Well, then, and they have proof of that somehow, that someone lets them in the home or or there's some access given. Uh, yeah, they can they can do something. Say this is, you know, uninhabitable and you need to leave and we need to fix this. It's a danger to you. It's a danger to other people. But if you don't let people in your home, right, you know, you're, I mean, the, the it, it always comes up after there's a, a, a house fire somewhere and stories are written. It's an old house. It, you know, it didn't have fire escapes. And, and people call and go, well, why didn't the city inspect? The city doesn't inspect homes for fire hazard ever. It does right. buildings, but there's no. So there, to a certain degree, 
public officials can only do so much right uh, other than using whatever legal tools they can use that you talked about earlier about uh, f- you know foreclosure or other options right so the neighbors are kind of stuck in a way aren't yeah they? they are stuck yeah and yeah they're stuck um, I think they're does the looking pub- to see what happens yeah. in the future I well does the publicity <laughs> surrounding this home change the picture at all I have no, I have no idea frankly um, I mean I wonder if you know people will oh you mean it. in terms of will people yeah, will the city step up I don't no, think- no, no, but your story you know we're getting people are reading it like crazy and I wonder if you know Carol would look at it and go well maybe I've not been the neighbor I should be and I need to change my ways oh. or whether she would care one way or another I think she cares to a degree I think she feels that she's um, misunderstood uh, that she is just trying to live a life of, you know, uh, fealty to nature, and um, she doesn't really quite understand why this is a, a big For, Front deal. page news. Right, and she's saying, listen, I, you know, she, she's not admitting to having rats. In fact, she says she does not, uh, even though evidence from the past has shown, you know, rat houses, rats being taken from her home. When it went into receivership, the, the, the state of her home was absolutely, I mean, I think, I think it's objectively ghastly uh, to look at it. You know, there were just boxes of, of pine cones. Well, there were some and, photographs, I think. Yeah, in photographs the story that in were the story. Yeah, yeah, there, yeah, there were sort of frozen dead animals in her freezers that she said she was giving to Lakeside Nature Center. The Lakeside Nature Center says we don't yeah. really accept those creatures, um, though. Again, they like Carol too. She's very likable. Um, yeah, I think she's mystified by it, and she says, "Listen, this is the way I live," and. If you want to poison rats on your property, put boxes on your property, do your she thing. said, do your thing. I'm not stopping you from doing that. Yeah. So why are you trying to stop me from living as I live? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That said, it, I could see that the neighbors would just be, you know, and the, the, the really fascinating part about it is when I talk to the neighbors, I don't think I've ever been in a story where people are so willing to allow you into their homes. Like I would show up at 8.30 in the morning on the way to work or so and say, hey, I'm doing a story on your neighbor. Would you mind? Come on in. They would say, come, <laughs> come on in. We have stories to tell. And then they would break out, you know, binders of pictures. Wow. There wasn't a neighbor around me that didn't have like 10, 20, 30, 40 photos that they had taken over the years, uh, documentation of what had been going on in the neighborhood. They were like, this has just got to stop. We've been dealing with this for years and years. We've tried to, we've asked her, told her we would help her clean up the yard. We've been reasonable. We've been reasonable. We've tried to do everything. I mean, people, it was really fascinating to see here, you know, welcome. Welcome, come in. We want to tell you the the story of what's going on. And you have some sympathy for the neighbors too, I assume. Well, it's it's hard to not have sympathy because I, I'll give this story. I lived in an apartment building once in the St. Louis area, and um, despite how clean our unit was, the people across the hallway had roaches. And if anybody listening has lived in an apartment building, you know that you're going to have to bug bomb the entire building to get rid of those. So the fact that we had a clean living situation didn't get rid of the problem. Mm-hmm. So we had to move out ultimately. So I can understand from that point of view how it would just be the worst situation to have to deal with this problem that you have no control over. Right. And and so and here's the uh, an interesting conflict in this as well as you'll you'll hear from readers, I've heard from readers who say, "Well, why doesn't she just move to the country and live as she wants?" She has 
property out in the country. Um, and what Carol says is, because well, I want to live here. Yeah, she she is <laughs> right? living as she wants. Yeah, this so. is, I am living yeah. as I like it here. I like being near the plaza. I like being near certain stores and mm-hmm. shops that she goes to. I've lived in this house since 1978. Yeah. Uh, these people are coming in. They haven't been here as long as I have. I'm living as I want to live. And then you ask the neighbors, well, you know, this must get tiresome. Have you thought about moving? And they say, I want to live where I want to live. This is my house, and this is how I want. I just, you know, where is our sort of neighborly but, accommodations? But I, was, but I was overwhelmingly struck. You know, Judy Thomas, our colleague, did a huge story on homeowners associations. Right. And, and you know, neighbors who get mad if one piece of grass is out of place, and they yeah. sue, and, yeah. and they're angry. That's really the flip side of this story. Well, it really is. You know, we I mean, have well, a Where homeowner. is the right. divide? line between sort of a reasonable expectation of how your neighbors maintain their homes as opposed to a homeowners association on one side and Carol Dilley on the other. Yeah, and I think, you know, Kansas City, of course, the homeowners associations are very different, right? We're in an urban environment and people seem to be, uh, you know, I think the neighbors I know would say that there's a sense of tolerance of how people want to live and the colors they want to paint their houses. In fact, indeed, that's why people move to those neighborhoods right, in right. some ways. There's a sense of sort of openness yeah, and Yeah, just the urban experience and diversity and right. all the Right, and other you stuff get the idea. Yeah. Right, people live in different ways. And there's uh, th- you allow for more in Kansas City than you would perhaps in a more... Uh, you know, structured neighborhood. Right, right. right. So, and the and the neighborhood association fees in that area are very, very small. Um, so, it, it's it's almost as if you know the neighborhood association tries. It's more of a planting plants and having a party at the end of the year. That right, kind of thing, right, right. So they would say that they're accepting. Um, Carol would say differently. So for for those listening, before you make up your mind about which side of the story you are on, I would encourage you to read Eric's story. We will include a link in the show notes, but you can also just read it on KansasCity.com. It's great stuff, Eric. I appreciate you coming well, thank on. Thank you. And keep us posted on the uh, twists and turns in this yeah, story. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Go forward. Thanks we again. will. Thank Eric you Eric Adler much. with the start. Thank you, Leo. Uh, Leo, stick around for a few minutes. After the break, we're going to talk about a big development down in Overland Park. Thanks for being with us. You're on Deep Background. Hey there, it's Leah. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you like what you hear, help us support this podcast and the journalism that reporters at the Kansas City Star do every day by subscribing. There's an easy way for you to do it. Head to kansascity.com slash background. You'll even get a special discount just for being a Deep Background listener. Subscribing at that URL will get you three months of unlimited digital access for $1.99 total. You get access to kansascity.com, the e-edition of the newspaper, mobile apps, and more for three whole months, and it only costs you $1.99. It's a pretty sweet deal. Plus, you'll be supporting journalism that makes a difference in Kansas City. So grab your computer or mobile device and go to kansascity.com slash background. And hey, thanks for listening. Hey, we're back now with uh, Leah Becerra, my co-host on Deep Background. Dave Helling with the Stars Editorial Board and Sarah Ritter joining us now to talk about a long night in Overland Park and a decision, an apparent decision, right, Sarah, on one of the most controversial projects that's been on the boards for many, many months uh, on the former property or the current property of the Brookridge Country Club. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the largest 
tax incentive deals that I've seen go through Overland Park, it's definitely been controversial. It's been going on for more than five years now and residents, obviously neighbors next to it are very opposed to it. A lot of them have sold their houses to kind of get to this point and there's still a few houses that will need to be purchased um, by the developer to actually do the deal. But yeah, there are a lot of flooding issues there on that golf course. There are some other issues that neighbors are really concerned about. And then sort of the typical things you hear about this project will be too dense and we don't need luxury apartments and retail and those are kind of the things that residents have been concerned about but right, let's back up a little bit we're talking about this is roughly 103rd and antioch 95th and antioch somewhere in that neck of the woods right yeah in yeah and park. off of interstate 435 I, I 435 yeah. that corridor and it's been a golf course for as long as i've been in johnson county but golf courses are hard to, to uh, maintain particularly in that that area because the property appears to be valuable and these developers want to build a a, a very very large project on that property right yeah we're talking about more than 200 acres um, once it's officially it's done. It's about $2 so billion, dollars, is that $2 right? $2 billion dollar project just for these first phases. Um, and then there could be more to come when another council down the road takes it on. Right, and the and it's housing, but it's also some retail, some office space. There was yes. at one time, wasn't there, Sarah, talk of an amphitheater and they were going to have plays and all kinds of entertainment and concerts. Is that still in the deal? Yeah, I think those would be future plans, but they were mentioned last night. Um, but yeah, an outdoor event type center that I think would host 5,000 people, um, so pretty sizable. And then also like a 45-acre park, um, which would be available to the yeah, public yeah. as well. If you had a single-family house in the neighborhood of this deal, Leah, my guess is you'd be a little concerned about a $2 billion <laughs> office and housing project. Well, if I think about the people who live in that area, they probably moved there to sort of get away from the noise pollution that might happen in the Kansas City sort of downtown area. So... This project to them might be something where they're thinking, oh, great, what kind of traffic congestion am I going to be dealing with? Are there going to be late concerts that are going to keep me up and all the things that go along when with that? When I was younger, my wife and I looked for homes in that area, and it's a pretty classic split-level subdivision, you know, two, three bedrooms up, and then the living room and kitchen with driveways, and it's a very sort of typically suburban neighborhood, although aging a little bit. I mean, those homes have been around for a long time, right, Sarah? Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think a lot of residents feel like they've been pushed out. And, you know, you kind of see how it goes once you get high rises next to your backyard, you eventually will move out. So yeah, I think that's exactly right. They're worried about traffic. And, you know, attorney John Peterson, who represented the developer, he said, if you're going to redevelop any golf course, it should be one that's off the interstate and made that argument. But <laughs> I don't know the residents feel that way. Yeah, although a lot of residents saw the golf course as a buffer between I-435 and their homes. Mm -hmm. Now, but the big issue here was, or one of the big issues, of course, was not the project itself, but all the taxpayer subsidies or the uh, incentives, it may be a better word, that Overland Park uh, is offering for this project, and um, Mayor Carl Gerlach casting the deciding vote. Run us through that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so roughly $200 million total in incentives over about 20 years um, is what the developer could capture. That's really out of character for Overland Park. That's really, that's a huge deal for Overland Park, yeah. And so it's been through several different iterations. Um, 
At one point, the developer did want star bonds as well. And so this actually became a TIF district because it was based on having tourism there because of star bonds. That part is now not part of the deal, but it they stays. They took star, bond, star bonds out. They voted against that. They voted yeah. this project down several times in different versions. Um, so yeah, no longer star bonds, just TIF and then also a sales tax. Um, but yeah, I was kind of the whole night, you could kind of see the way it was going, but I could go either way on how it would end. And then um, they needed nine out of 12 yes votes to get it through. They had eight, and then the mayor stepped in and gave the last vote. And there was some hissing and booing, apparently. Is that right? Oh, yeah. yeah. The crowd was not happy, especially and, at And the one neighbors in the out there have been fighting this uh, for five years. Uh, and the, the, not only the, the scope of the project and their fears about flooding, but also the idea of tax subsidies, Leah, which, you know, we've been fighting on this side of the state line and talking about for many, many years. It seems like it's come to Overham Park. Yeah, it seems like, and it's it's so weird to hear that it's coming to Overland Park because I think a lot of people might be thinking about the whole economic border war coming to an end and then hearing about these new incentives and those things might be crossing wires. But yeah, nobody likes to think that their money is being given to somebody or something that's going to eventually, kind of like you were saying earlier, maybe push them out of the neighborhood or make their neighborhood less desirable of a place to live for them. We heard a bunch of that last night from residents who were saying, look, if you approve this, at least make them do it on their own dime. I mean, I think that's the biggest concern, isn't it, Sarah, That, or one of the big concerns that if you're going to spend this kind of money, do it out of your own pocket. Why do you have to have in Overland Park, Kansas, these subsidies that, let's face it, were invented to help distressed areas? This clearly is not that. Exactly. Yeah, that was the big argument on the four council members who voted against this was if this project is viable, the developers should be able to do it with their own money. This is not a public project, so tax dollars should not be going to toward this. Um, Councilman Ferris Ferrisati called it un-American for that reason. Um, but yeah, so that was a big part. And there was also a conversation about the Power and Light District in downtown KC and um, how that has not necessarily succeeded in a lot of people's views, um, but was subsidized. So yeah, that was a huge part of it. And it was an interesting conversation to happen before the new council takes office um, in January. Right. And Scott Hamblin, who won office and will unseat Rick Collins, um, he argued, he was upset that they pushed this through, through so quickly. Right, I want to come back to that because I think that's an important point for us to discuss. But let's back up a little bit. If you, you know, I grew up in Overland Park uh, um, until I left for school many, many, many years ago. And but the changes along Metcalf are just astonishing. I mean, if you, you drive into Overland Park over in the last two years, what used to be sort of a sleepy, you know, motor hotel and some other things are now big apartments. So subsidies and development and revitalization, if you will, of Overland Park is a huge issue, isn't it? And, and in fact, it came up during the council races. It was, yeah, and it was a big conversation last night. I think that's part of why it went on for so long is everybody had to have their say about what's the future of Overland Park? What type of development do we want to attract here? Does this fit our vision? That was a really long conversation that was had. Yeah. So how, how do you, how, how should Overland Park people answer that question? I mean, is Overland Park on the path, in your view, to sort of becoming a first, ring suburb with high rises and offices or does it remain in essence a bedroom community which is what it was when i was growing up 
I think it depends on who you ask. I think (laughs) (laughs) there are people who, longtime residents who, like you said, um, you know, moved there to get out of sort of the dense population in Kansas City. And so they want the quiet suburbs and the good school districts. And now you're seeing all these high rises come in and that's not what they want. Then, of course, you have the developers coming in saying this is the way of the future, this live, play, work walkable, you know, sort of um, development that you can get to everything. Um, And so, yeah, I think people have differing opinions and that's where a lot of these sort of controversial topics come up. But there is, you know, forward OP is the vision that's mentioned and they do have, you know, sort of things they're striving for. One of those things is affordable housing, which this development, of course, does not meet. So that was a big conversation too. Now let's go back to what Sarah was talking about a minute ago, which is the council is going to change, right, next in January, is that accurate? And, you know, some of the new members were elected precisely on this idea that we don't support subsidies, right? I mean, talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, is there a chance they could rescind this action? Is this the end of the Brookridge story or, you know, do we have to, you know, talk about this for the next five that's, years yeah that's a good question um the ne- the next council if the you know the developer does not meet some of these um deadlines in the next few years they'll definitely have a say over it i think it's they've pretty much done what they need to do to make sure it happens um despite new council members who are much more opposed to tax incentives going to be taking office in a month um at least two um out of the three who were elected you know kind of lean more on that side of being opposed to tax incentives. So I think it would have been a much different vote if it had happened in late January. Yeah. You know, Leah, we've talked, we've done several podcasts on incentives, Kansas City incentives and downtown, and Steve Bockrod has come in, and now Sarah and Kevin Hardy. And, we, and it seems as if the general public is not overwhelmingly in favor of these deals, and yet they keep getting approved. Why do you think that is? Or do you think I'm just missing something and maybe they're getting turned down? Or It does seem as if the leadership of these cities isn't hearing the public. Yeah, and it's not clear if, it's not clear why that necessarily is, but I could see the, f- the simple fact that, you know, money talks is being um, right. one reason why it keeps happening. Because ultimately, somebody's got a big project they want to build um, and somebody wants it, and there's money involved. So it's just one of those things where sometimes the voters, even though they don't like the idea of incentives, aren't necessarily the ones making the decision. Right, or forget about it by the time election runs around it because you're against incentives on this sort of the broad general level. But when the specific project comes, like Carl, Carl Gerlach during his mayoral campaign, seem to be a little skeptical of this game, and yet he's the deciding vote, Sarah. Yeah, he has been opposed to some parts of it in the past, and so I wasn't really sure how he would go. Um, But he lives near the development. I think that played a big role in it. He wants to see something happen there. Typically, though, he is relatively supportive of development agreements, like a lot of the longstanding council members. And what residents point to is money going into elections from development agreements. Yeah. Do you think this hurts him if he were to seek re-election? Which is a big if, but... I think if the momentum of... You know, Fair Saudi and these different council members who are very vocal continues to build, which it has been, and residents get angrier and angrier about it, which this might cause that to some extent. If people don't forget about it by the time that election comes around, I think it could make a difference. All right, great. 
Sarah Ritter with The Star, thanks so much for coming in and chatting about this important project, and we'll stay with it. I want to take a little bit of a time at the end and ask you just to sit there for a minute because our friend Leah Vissera is leaving. She's This is her final podcast, which, you know, is a great loss to the people of Kansas City. But tell, so tell us where you're going, Leah, and what your deal, your next deal is going to be. Sure. So I'm, uh, I'm moving to the Boston metropolitan area, which is big for me because I lived in the Midwest my entire life. <laughs> um, but I'm going to be working for Neiman Foundation, which um, if you're not familiar with it, it's a journalism foundation. Um, and they have a number of publications that sort of analyze the journalism industry. And they also have fellowships for journalists that are looking to try something different, try something new. So this is it's really exciting for me to get to work with all of those people and get to still be in the journalism industry, yeah. but maybe helping newsrooms from a distance rather than being the one in the newsroom right. helping and, out. And of course, it's our loss and the community's loss. But before we sort of wrap up, we don't do too much navel-gazing here at Deep Background because we like to talk about stories and not ourselves. But no one who watches the news industry, Leah, can be confused about the state we're in. You know, and it'll be reporters like you and Sarah you know, for me, it, it, it's a different challenge. What is the future of reporting? I mean, what do you think Neiman will help us understand that? Or what? how do you see it going in? I think the goal of the foundation is to positively impact the future of journalism. So, I mean, I don't think anybody knows what the future of journalism looks like, but I think we all know it's incredibly important um, because our job is ultimately to hold people accountable who are making these decisions. Um, just what we we're talking yes, about, this exactly huge incentive right. package being passed. If the Star and even other local media outlets weren't reporting on this, the average person living in Kansas City or in Overland Park would probably not be paying attention to it at all. Right. And the elected uh, officials could be making decisions in a vacuum, Whereas now, at least there's some record of which, you know, who voted for what and, and the public can respond accordingly. But so, but you don't enter into this fellowship with, or this, this new job. I guess not a fellowship. Yeah, no, a, I won't this, be a fellow. <laughs> no, no. But you, without any real sense of where we're headed. I think that um, it's almost, it's too early to tell where journalism is headed. Journalism isn't going anywhere, it might change, and I think the thing that's gonna change the most is potentially just how people access that information and how journalism makes money to support what we're doing. Right. Um, because ultimately, journalism is expensive. Right, another um, way of putting that, I tell people this all the time is, and I've been doing this for more than 40 years. I love what I do, but I still can't do it for free. That's I mean, right. I have to eat. I have to pay a mortgage. You wouldn't like walk into else. a bakery and take a loaf of bread and walk out because somebody spent some time right. making that. You're going to pay for it. And right. journalism's the same. And um, we spend, you know, sometimes days on a story, sometimes years on a story. And that is a lot of time. It's a lot of dedication. And that, that costs money. So I think ultimately... Um, the future of journalism is figuring out how we're going to support it financially and, you know, how people are going to access it in the future. Well, that's great to hear. And I must say, again, at the end of the podcast, the future of journalism is also people like Leah Becerra and Sarah Ritter, who are great reporters, great journalists. And as long as that talent is still available to the public, then we're in good shape. We just have to figure out a way 
to get people to understand that you need to pay for it in some way or another. But once we figure out that that uh, hurdle, the idea that you guys are still on the job is just really encouraging for those of us who have done it for a while. So Leah, we'll miss you and thank you so much for being a part of Deep Background. Now, Deep Background isn't going anywhere. <laughs> We've got to figure out who the next co-host will be and how it's going to work and when we'll have it because we do think this conversation is important to have. But but Leah will have to come back and be on the show at another time and tell us what she's learned. Thank you, thank you again so much for your efforts, Leah. And Sarah, thank you for coming uh, uh, on the show. And we'll, again, keep track of that project in Overland Park. Okay. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet. Okay. I'm Dave Helling. I'm with the STARS Editorial Board. And you have been on Deep Background. Thank you.